Welcome back to SightedMoon.com. I'm your host, Joseph Dumont, and we are glad to have you back. We have the pumps running. We have the rain pouring down. We have lightning going on, and we have the laundry being done. So if you hear any background noises in this episode, that might be what you're hearing. And our pump is just going flat out, trying to keep up with all this rain. We were poured on last night. This week, I want to talk to you about something that we've been having to deal with for a number of years, and recently it came back to us from Africa. Uh, The churches over there are using this scripture to justify them not having to keep the Sabbath or the holy days. So we've dug this out of our, our newsletters from a long time ago and redid it and put it up on the website. And it's called the Law in Colossians, uh, verses two, or chapter two, verse fourteen to seventeen, and we're going to look at that this scripture, and we're going to talk about it today because there's some gems in here that most people just read over and don't really realize what's going on. But we're also going to do this, and we're going to address the Seventh Day Adventists because they also use this scripture to speak out of both sides of their mouth. And it kind of, it's kind of irritating that they do that. I, I can understand Christians using it because they don't want to obey the law in the first place. You know, it's done away with according to them. But we're going to look at that and we're going to address this so that we take this tool that's been given to us who want to obey the Torah and shows us the truth. And once you understand that truth, the way that these people are using it, you'll see how deceptively wrong it is. So let's, I want to start here um, with a quote from Ellen G. White. Now, I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist. I don't follow the Seventh-day Adventist teachings of Ellen G. White. But because we're going to address the Seventh-day Adventists, I want to use some of her quotes so that the, those people who are in the Seventh-day Adventist church can hear her. Now, they, most of the people I've met from the Seventh-day Adventists have the Bible memorized. They memorize it really well. And it's, I'm surprised at some of the things they say. They also have Ellen White's books. I don't know how many books she's written, but they have most of her books memorized as well. So my hat goes off to them, and uh, I admire them for doing that. But they have some things misunderstood. So we're going to quote from Ellen here now. Um, We must not for a moment think that there is no more light, no more truth to be given us. We are in danger of becoming careless by our indifference, losing the sanctifying power of truth and composing ourselves with the thought, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That's quoting Revelation 3.17. While we must hold fast to the truths which we have already received, we must not look with suspicion upon any new light that God may send. That's a very insightful thing. Our brethren should be willing to investigate in a candid way every point of controversy. If a brother is teaching error, those who are in responsible positions ought to know it. And if he is teaching truth, they ought to take their stand at his side. We should all know what is being taught among us, for if it is the truth, we need it. 
we are all under obligation to God to know what he sends us. He has given directions by which we may test every doctrine to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to his word, it is because there is no light in them. Isaiah 8.20 If the light represented meets this test, we are not to refuse to accept it because it does not agree with our ideas. And that's Ellen G. White from her Gospel Workers 1915, Chapter 8, Dangers. That is good advice that we all need to listen to. Prove all things. Be a Berean about stuff. So we're looking at Colossians 2.14. Starting in chapter, uh, verse 14, here's what it says. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over it. Uh, verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of a holiday, or of the new moons, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Hmm. So there's the introduction. There's what we're going to be talking about today. What was nailed to the cross is on the basis of handwriting of ordinances, referred to in the law, which refers to the law of Moses, that leads most modern Christianity to conclude that the law, in part or in full, has been done away with. And this is what they used to justify that it was nailed to the cross. So here are some sources that conclude what I've just said here. Jesus removed, and this is from the gospelway.com, uh, Old Testament laws. Jesus removed the ordinances, so we need not keep the laws regarding foods, holidays, holy days, or the Sabbath. And quoting Colossians 2.16. But the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. Hence, all the Old Testament laws were removed, including the Ten Commandments and the Sabbath. Listen to what they just said. They said the Ten Commandments have been removed because they were nailed to the cross. So they're saying that you know, adultery is okay, that murder is okay, that lying and stealing is okay. Really? Okay, here's another one. This is from the Bible.ca. Sabbath keepers refute it. The Sabbath commandment was stated to be abolished in Colossians 2, 14 to 16. This means that under the new covenant law of the Ten Commandments, nine of the Ten Commandments have been carried forward and one is abolished. Guess, guess which one has been abolished? If you guess adultery, you're wrong. If you guessed lying, you're wrong. Those have been carried forward according to the Bible.ca Sabbath Keepers Refute. The one commandment that's been done away with, according to them, is the Sabbath. Uh, here's the SDA Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 205. Sabbath days cannot refer to the weekly Sabbath, designated by the fourth commandment, but must indicate the ceremonial rest days. Okay, so the Seventh-day Adventist saying the Sabbath is still to be kept, but the holy days of Leviticus 23 are not to be kept. Hmm. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? 
Here's what Ellen says, Ellen G. White. The student of the Bible should be taught to approach it in the spirit of a learner. We are to search its pages, not for proof to to sustain our opinions, but in order to know what God says. That's why we're to read the Bible, to know what God says, not to prove or justify our position. Sabbath days appears nine times in the King James Bible. Nine times. Matthew uh, 12, verse 5. Or have you not read, now this is the old King James, so I might get my tongue twisted around it, but have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? So we have the Sabbath days in Matthew 12, verse 10, 12, verse 12, Mark 3, 4, Luke 4, 31, Luke 6, 2, Luke 6, 9, and Acts 17, 2. Sabbath days, in all these passages, is to equal the weekly Sabbath. Without exception, the Greek word sabbaton, now here, you know, we're going to say sabbaton here, and that's the Greek word translated from uh, Strong's 45, 21. But sabbaton generally means the high holy days. And that's 76, uh, 77, and 76, 76 means the weekly Sabbath. So there's going to be a little bit of confusion here. We're going to just try and muddle through it. But I want you to pay attention to what we're talking about. We're going to take what these three people have just said to justify them not keeping the Sabbath, and not keeping the holy days, and not keeping the Old Testament laws, And we're going to show you what this verse in Colossians means. But we have to break it down. So right now we're looking at the part in this Colossians verse about Sabbath days. Um, Colossians 2.16 Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holiday, holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days. So now we break this down and we look at each word and see what it means. And the Sabbath word, or sabbaton, is the Greek, and the Hebrew's Greek, 4521. It comes from the Hebrew 7676, the Sabbath, that is Sabbath, Shabbat, a day of weekly repose from secular avocations, also the observance of, institution, of the institution itself, by extension, a Sinite, that is the interval between two Sabbaths. Likewise, the plural and all the above applications. So that's the technical definition of uh, G4521. So it refers to a weekly seventh-day Sabbath. And the word sabbaton, S-A-B-B-A-T-O-N, 45, number, Hebrews uh, um, lexicon, 4521, is found 68 times in the Greek New Testament. The word days is in italics. So Sabbath days, the word Sabbath was there, but the days part has been added. So it's in italics. So when they add something to the to the verse to try and make it better so that you can understand it, they write it in italics so you know that they've added this word. It's you know, they're being honest. They don't sometimes the Hebrew is not or the Greek is not always translatable into English. Yes, your old King James Bible is not the original word of God. 
they spoke. The apostles spoke. Yeshua spoke. They were Jewish. They spoke Hebrew. Or they spoke Aramaic. The apostles sometimes translated things into Greek. Because Greek was becoming the national language. Or the international language at that time. But the Bible was not written in, in English. It was only written in English in the late 1600s. And that was done by King James himself. It is reasonable and logical to conclude, regardless of your IQ, that the Greek word sabbaton in Colossians 2.16 also refers to the weekly Sabbath. This, this is the conclusion of every single Bible commentary known to man, with only a few exceptions, including the SDA Bible. So what I told you before about this word sabbaton is now going to be explained to you. It's not just it's not just the Sabbath days that we're talking about here. Okay, there are several texts in the Bible that have this this sequential grouping. So the holy days, new moons, and Sabbath, or Sabbath days. That word days has been added. Holy days, new moons, and Sabbaths. This is it's like a phrase. It's a Hebrewism, and it's talking about something. So now we're going to go through all these verses. First Chronicles twenty three thirty one. And to offer all burnt sacrifices unto the Lord in the Sabbath, in the new moons, and on the set feasts, by number according to the order commanded unto them, continually before the Lord. Second uh, Chronicles 2.4, 2 Chronicles 8.13, 2 Chronicles 31.3, Nehemiah 10.33, Isaiah 1.13.14, Ezekiel 45.17, and Hosea 2.11. We'll read Hosea 2.11. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, and her Sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. So this is like a Hebrewism covering all these holy times. There are three categories of celebrations. Annual, holy days or feasts. Monthly, new moons. Weekly, Sabbaths or Sabbath days. In the past eight verses, the annual, monthly, weekly celebrations are always grouped together. Colossians 2.16 does the same thing. Thus, it is reasonable to, and logical to conclude that the sequential grouping of Colossians 2.16 also refers to the yearly, monthly, weekly Sabbath celebrations as noted in the other eight verses. Therefore, textually and contextually, Sabbath days in Colossians 2.16 refers to the weekly seventh-day Sabbath. So the SDA Bible commentary interprets the Sabbaton Sabbath days as a reference to the annual ceremonial Sabbath and not to the weekly Sabbath. What? I'll read that again. Because <laughs> you may have just... What? The Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary interprets the Sabbaton, S-A-B-B-A-T-O-N, Sabbath days, as a reference to the annual ceremonial Sabbath. These are the annual holy days. And not to the weekly Sabbath. Again, as I said to you earlier, the word sabbaton in the Strong's Concordance is talking about the high holy days. But sabbaton in Strong's Concordance is also mixed up and refers to the weekly Sabbath. The word sabbaton in the Greek is referring to the annual holy days. And the Seventh-day Adventist Bible got this right. Uh-oh. Now I'm starting to hurt my head. I'm what? Okay, Joe, you're confusing us here. Yes, there is some confusion here. 
because of mistranslations and misunderstanding. Let's keep on going through this article. And this article is on my website. If you want to go back and get the notes for it, go to uh, The Law and Colossians. It's published uh, June 23rd, 2017. Go and look it up. You can read it. I want you to listen to it while you're driving. I want you to listen to what I'm talking about as you're doing your chores. I want you to think about this. The word sabbaton is talking about the annual holidays. And Colossians, Colossians, they've added the word days there to make it the Sabbath day, the weekly Sabbath day. All these commentators have concluded that it's talking about the weekly Sabbath day. But the Seventh-day Adventist Bible correctly understands it to be the holy days. Let's keep reading. The Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary interprets the Sabbaton, Sabbath days, as a reference to the annual ceremonial Sabbath and not to the weekly Sabbath. It is linguistically impossible to interpret Sabbaton as a reference to any other ceremonial Sabbath. The cited commentary rests in its interpretation, however, not on the grammatical or linguistic use of the word Sabbaton, but rather on a theological interpretation of the Sabbath as related to shadow in Colossians 2.17. The theological interpretation which the Adventist commentary gives to the Sabbath is hard to justify. That is Dr. Samuel Bakioki, SDA author and theologian, May 1997, from Sabbath to Sunday, page 359. The implication is that the Sabbath being described in Colossians 2.16 is the weekly Sabbath. When Paul here refers to Sabbath, if he meant the ceremonial Sabbath, he was needlessly repeating himself. Dr. William Richardson, chair of the Depot Department of Religion at Andrews University. Oh, there's some confusion here again. Is the Sabbath really nailed to the cross? Are the holy days really nailed to the cross? Are those who are keeping Sunday, the Sunday keepers, are they right in saying that the law is done away? There's only one way to find out. Let's keep reading. Let's see what the scriptures actually do say. Let's see what was actually nailed to the cross. The Seventh-day Adventists have some adjusting to do here, as well as Christianity. And they need to understand what it is that they're teaching and that they are misleading people and leading them astray. Seventh-day Adventists and the rest of Christendom agree that the handwriting of ordinances in Colossians 2.14 is the law. Seventh-day Adventists, however, cleverly divide the law into two parts, moral and ceremonial. Ceremonial versus moral laws, amazing facts, This is from AmazingFacts.org, study guide uh, number six, ceremonial law. The assumption is made that since Moses wrote the Mosaic law on paper in a book, along with other ordinances, including the feast, and placed it in the side of the ark, then it was the Mosaic or ceremonial law that was done away with and nailed to the cross and not the Ten Commandments or the moral law. Now we're starting to do some Seventh-day Adventist gymnastics here. The imagery is this. The moral law is written in stone. It's permanent and everlasting. The ceremonial law is written on paper. It is only temporary. Seventh-day Adventist reasoning claims that since the moral law cannot be nailed to the cross, therefore it is the ceremonial laws that are nailed to the cross. Thus, 
saving the Seventh-day Sabbath, which is part of the Ten Commandments, from being done away with. The problem with this theory is we ignore the grammar, we ignore the linguistics, we ignore the context, we ignore the Greek, and we ignore the Bible. All in favor of a theological assumption. These theological assumptions blind us from the reality of the linguistics and the literal meaning of this text. We refuse to accept the clear letter of Scripture, which leads Sunday keepers to say things like, Logic has never been a strong point with the Seventh-day Adventist. Well, logic has never been a strong point of Christianity either. So now what do we do? From the evidence we have seen so far, we can safely say that we have wholly sound arguments. Or can we? No, we don't. Can we save the weekly Sabbath from being nailed to the cross and not suffer from biblical blind blindness at the same time? The theological premise for this whole argument rests on the meaning of the phrase handwriting of ordinances. Can we prove from the Bible that the handwriting of ordinances is, in fact, the ceremonial law? Handwriting of ordinances in Greek is, now excuse my Greek is not very good, but the word is chirographon, toi, toi. Chirographon, toi, dogmesin. Chirographon is the handwriting. Dogmesin is the ordinances. Now, we just need to prove that this is referring to the ceremonial law. But how do we find a Greek word in the Old Testament that is written in Hebrew? Okay, so we're going from English to Greek to Hebrew and trying to find common things here. We simply need to use the scriptures that the Apostle Paul and the Greek spelling, Jews, were using at that time. They were using the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the name given to the Greek translation of the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament. Paul was not an exception. He frequently quoted the Septuagint in many of his writings. If Paul truly meant to say that the ceremonial laws was done away with, and he was referring to it with the phrase handwriting, handwriting of ordinances, then he should be referencing that law in the Torah, the five books of Moses. Because that's where the ceremonial law is defined. Paul wouldn't just invent random words for the law. If he's talking about a law found in the Torah, he would use the terms for what, for that law as found in the Torah. However, the words dogma sin or dogma do not even appear once in the Greek version of the Torah. Not once. The word for law found here is nomos, N-O-M-O-S. The Greek word, the Greek word for law is nomos, it's number uh, 3551 from the Strongest and Courts. And comes in, it appears 197 times in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, the word nomos does not appear even once in the book of Colossians. What does this mean? What does this mean? Where did Paul get the expression handwriting of ordinances? And what does that mean? It doesn't have any clear reference to any sort of law in the Old Testament. So, this handwriting of ordinances is not found in the Old Testament. 
nomos, which is talking about the law in the Old Testament, is not found in the New Testament or in Colossians. There's something going on here. You know, it's a sleight of hand when magicians smoke in mirrors. And Christianity and the Seventh-day Adventist Church have used smoke and mirrors here to cover something up in order to put forth their, their agenda. So let's go back to Colossians and read it in context. Of chapters 2, 11 to 14. In whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead, and you, being dead to your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Paul is using metaphors. A metaphor is defined as a direct comparison between two or more seemingly unrelated object, subjects. They usually have no meaning outside the culture to which they belong. Such as in here in North America, we talk about couch potatoes. And that's a potato that sits on a couch. No, a couch potato is you parked there watching TV all the time. It really doesn't make sense in other cultures if I try to translate into another language. But this is what Paul is talking about here. Again, Paul speaking Hebrew or speaking Greek is now being translated to Hebrew, to Greek, to English. But Paul was a Jew. He was taught by uh, one of the best Jewish scholars of the time. I just slipped my mind. Gamaliel? Gamaliel? Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He bragged in the, the New Testament about him being circumcised on the eighth day, showing how righteous he was. He was a brilliant Hebrew scholar. He was zealous. He was out there killing Christians or those who were following Jesus or Yeshua because of his zealousness. So Paul's using metaphors here. Circumcision made without hands. Willingness to do God's will. That is a metaphor. Putting off the body of flesh. Putting off the body of flesh is, is resisting temptation and fleeing from sin. That's another metaphor. Buried with him in baptism. Uh, the washing away of sin, another metaphor. The context is of being forgiven of our trespasses and being a new creature. That's what Paul's talking about here. The, what about the blotting out of the handwriting of ordinances? This is a metaphor as well. Chirographon is the Greek word uh, from Strong's 5498. And what this is, let me just read it to you. Neuter of a compound from 5495 and 1125. Something handwritten, chiriograph, that is a manuscript, specifically a legal document or bond, figuratively handwriting. So where did this come from? Where did this term, this expression that Paul is using, where did it come from? It is a receipt. 
It originated from the practice of canceling debts by driving a spike through the center of the debt, which after it could, do, could no longer be held against the debtor. So when you go to a restaurant and they take a little bill and they write out your order and they give you the total and it's $15, you are indebted to that restaurant for $15. They give you the food, you give them the money they take that piece of paper, that handwriting, that Cheerio graph on, and they stick it over top of a, a, a spike, a receipt spike, which is a single prong sticking up in the air, and they shove this bill over it, and now that it's poked a hole through it, that means that the bill has been paid and they can no longer come after you because it's got a hole in the middle. Do you understand? This comes from the Roman days during Paul's lifetime. Do you understand this? So in a Roman crucifixion, there are three basic elements, all perfectly described in the account of the crucifixion of Yeshua. First, the scourging, and then the carrying of the cross being by the condemned to the site, and finally the nailing or the binding of the condemned to the cross or the cross beam, and then attaching that beam to the upright pole, post, or tree. Another element was also involved. In order to be a, a deterrent, the crime of the victim had to be posted in clear sight of all those who passed by. For this purpose, they used a board covered with gypsum inscribed with black letters called a titulus. Titulus, I think that's how you say it. This was usually carried ahead of the victim on the way to the crucifixion and then posted above the cross in clear sight. If Yeshua wouldn't have died for our sins, then you and I would have to hang on the cross ourselves. And guess what they would write on this sign hung above us? Right. Our sins. Every single sin that we have done would be listed on this sign that would be above us as we hung on that cross. <laughs> it's going to be a big sign. Yeah. Yeah. That would be them nailing our sins to the cross. Nailing our chiriographon to the cross. We've now paid the price for our sins when we're hanging on the cross. Us. That's the debt. That's the debt. You are indebted to the law when you break the law. The same as you are indebted to the restaurant when you bought the meal. Yeshua paid for your meal. He paid that price. He paid that price for your sins. See, I was just using a metaphor here. He paid that price for your sins. That law is not done away. Do you understand? So if you're speeding and you're doing 100 miles an hour in a 50 mile an hour zone, the police officer comes up to give you a ticket. That's the handwritten ordinances. The chiriographon. Because you broke that law. You are indebted to pay the penalty, which is either going to jail, losing your car, or a fine. That's what this paper represents. And until you pay that debt, you are legally bound by this paper. But take that paper and shove it over a, a spike receipt and it's now paid for. 
The law is not done away. The debt is now done away. The debt is what Yeshua paid. The debt is what you paid at the restaurant. The debt is what you pay the police officer when you pay for that speeding ticket. The chirographon. Do you understand? The law is not done away. It's the chirographon. The debt. That is what's done away if you repent. But if you don't repent, you get to pay that debt yourself. You get to hang on the tree yourself. The blotting out of handwriting of ordinances is a legal term whose meaning and application is from the system of jurisprudence or law used by the Greco-Roman legal system. Paul, when he's writing here, is using legal terminology to show how God has legally dealt with our sins. It is not showing us how God has dealt with the law. It's how he's dealt with our sins. Okay, so that's very important to understand. But there's something else here that you need to, to hear and to learn and to understand here. So get ready for the next part. The blotting out of handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Taking it out of the way. The way. The way is number, uh, uh, Strong's number 33119. We want to look at this. So here's a, a Samuel Bakioki, once again, from his book, The Sabbath in the New Testament, page 111. Recent studies have shed light on the meaning of chirographon, which occurs only once in the scriptures, Colossians 2.14. Its usage in apocalyptic literature indicates that chirographon is a record book of sins or a certificate of sin indebtedness, but not the moral or ceremonial law. This view is also supported by the clause, and this he removed out of the middle. Okay, so the middle. Why is the middle important? The middle was the, was the position occupied at the center of the court or assembly by the accusing witness. In the context of Colossians, the accusing witness is the record book of sins, which God in Christ has erased and removed out of the court. We conclude then that the document nailed to the cross is not the law in general or the Sabbath in particular, but rather the record book of sins. Any attempt to read into it a reference to the Sabbath or to the Holy Days or any Old Testament ordinance is unwarranted, gratuitous fantasy. Again, that's Dr. Samuel Bakyoki. So here's some other translations. He canceled the record of the changes against us, of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. The New Living Translation. God wiped out the cha charges that were against us for disobeying the law of Moses. He took them away and nailed them to the cross. The Contemporary English Bible. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Today's NIV. He did this by erasing the charges that were brought against us by the written laws God had established. He took the charges away by nailing them to the cross. Again, that's from God's Word. 
So Paul here is talking about circumcision and baptism to show us how they represent the cleansing and forgiveness of our sins. He is telling the Colossians, who are being misled by heretics, that they don't need to submit themselves to these ridiculous rules and regulations to gain salvation because God has forgiven them. How can Paul in this context be speaking about the law or any part of the law as being done away with? We are not forgiven by doing away with the law. We are forgiven by our sins being nailing, being nailed and paid for on the cross. The abolishing of the law doesn't make us sinless. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. Colossians 2.16 Most scholars make the assumption that holy days, new moons and Sabbath days are the false teachings that Paul is combating. They assume that the Gentile Colossians were not keeping these days but that only the heretics were. First of all, Paul calls these false teachings the commandments and doctrines of men. The false teachings, the commandments and doctrines of men. Verse 22, Paul was of Jews, as we've already said, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Never in a million years would he refer to the law, the Torah, as the commandments and doctrines of men. It is unthinkable. The holy days, the new moons, the Sabbaths are clearly defined in the Torah as being commandments of Jehovah, our Creator. Not even a bad Jew would refer to the Torah as the commandments and doctrines of men. Several scholars came together and wrote a book called From Sabbath to the Lord's Day, which is similar to Dr. Samuel Bakioki's book From Sabbath to Sunday. And they all agree with regards to the meaning of let no man judge you. No, it's not a Pauline condemnation, but a Pauline approbation. They agree that Paul is not doing the judging. The ones doing the judging are the false teachers, the heretics, for not observing their man-made rules. The false teachers, the heretics, were, were telling them how to do these things. They were saying, if you really want to be saved, you have to eat a certain way, drink a certain way, and observe the holy days and new moons and Sabbath days a certain way. Touch not, taste not, handle not. Paul is saying, let no man judge you. Or let no man dictates you how to eat, drink, or observe the holy days, new moons, and Sabbath days. Paul is not doing the judging. Paul is not condemning these five practices of eating, drinking, or observing the holy days, new moons, and Sabbaths. He approves them, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Notice that the word is, is in italics here. So here, here's what we're saying. Which is a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. That is, is in italics. So it's not supposed to be there. Don't let anyone judge you except for the body of Christ. Christ. That's what it actually says. Except the body of Christ. The body of Christ who are keeping the Torah. Do you see this? Most people connect the two parts of this verse from to form a complete sentence. This sentence which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. So the translators thought it would make more sense if they put in the verb is 
in there. For as the new heavens and new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship me, saith the Lord. That's Isaiah 66, 22 to 23. Does that sound like the law has been done away? No, no, it does not. So back up here, let no man therefore judge you in these matters, but the body of Christ, which is those who are keeping the Torah, those who are being obedient to Jehovah. Don't let these people that don't keep the Torah judge you. They don't know what the Torah is. In other words, Paul is telling the Colossians that no one should be judging them in these matters except fellow believers. Paul in Colossians 2 is not focusing on the law, but rather he is focusing on God's forgiveness and the completeness in Christ. We can save the Seventh-day Sabbath and not have to ignore all the biblical evidence and be called illogical. We just have to get our facts straight and use the only holy sound arguments. The law was not nailed to the cross. What was nailed to the cross was the record book of sins which was against us. Paul did not do away with any laws. Paul says in Acts 25.8, Neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar have I offended anything at all. Doesn't Peter not say that the sayings of Paul are hard to understand and that those who are not knowledgeable of the law take what he says and twist it to their own damnation? How many of you have done that or are doing that? Because you don't know what the law is, you don't understand it, you take what Paul says and you twist it to your own damnation. Because when you stand before the court of Jehovah, he's going to say, you know, who are you? And you're going to say, you did this, you did this, you cast out demons, you prayed for the, the, the sick, you healed the sick, you attended church every Sunday, and you're a good person. And he's going to say, be gone from me. I don't know who you are. You workers of lawlessness. Workers of lawlessness. Who are these workers of lawlessness if it's not you? Well, that's the people in the Methodist church. Or is that the people in the Second Baptist? Because you're in the First Baptist. Or is that the Catholics? Or is that the, the, the modern Catholics versus the traditional ones? Which group of people is this? The workers of lawlessness are those people who do not keep the law. The law tells you what your sins are. And when you have those sins in front of you, they condemn you. Those sins have been paid for if you repent and return to keeping the law. You got charged for doing a hundred and a fifty. You'll get charged again if you're doing a hundred and a fifty down the road. But if you repent and start doing 50 miles an hour from now on, you won't be charged. And if somebody's paid your sin, you won't have to pay for that fifth, that fine. That's what we're talking about here. That's what this is talking about in Colossians. The seventh day Sabbath is a feast day. It's commanded there in Exodus 20, we're to keep it 
It's a fourth commandment. It's part of the Ten Commandments. It's not been done away. The Ten Commandments haven't been done away. The Fourth Commandment hasn't been done away. But the Fourth Commandment is also found in Leviticus 23, where it says, these are my feast days. These are my Sabbath. And they include the holy days. And this is where the Seventh-day Adventists go off the track. They try to separate this out. It's only the Sabbath, not the holy days. It also includes the sabbatical and jubilee years. The Sabbath, the fourth commandment, includes all of these. If you're not keeping them, you're sinning. And he will say to you, Be gone from me, you workers of lawlessness. I do not know you. Do you want him to say that to you? Now, some are going to argue that the annual Sabbaths were abolished because sacrifices were performed on those days. So this is what they're saying is a ceremonial law. So, you know, at Seventh-day Adventists, this is where they split the line. It's the ceremonial law. So it's the, the annual holy days. They're the ones that are done away with. Okay. Uh, let's go to Numbers 28, verse 9 and 10. And on the Sabbath day, two lambs of the first year without spot and two-tenth uh, two deals of flour for a meal offering mingled with oil and a drink offering thereof. This is a burnt offering every weekly Sabbath beside the continual burnt offering and his drink offering. So if you're going to use that argument that the ceremonial laws were only talking about the holy days, and here's a, a law, ceremonial law for the Sabbath. You're being hypocrites here. Well, doesn't, it doesn't really make a difference anyway because the annual Sabbath were only for the Jews. The weekly Sabbath is the Sabbath of the Lord. It's for everyone, but not the annual Sabbath. Those were just the feasts of the Jews. Huh? Leviticus 23, 2. The feasts of Jehovah. Leviticus 23, 2 again. These are my, Jehovah's, feasts. Leviticus 23, 4. The feasts of Jehovah. Leviticus 23, 5. The Lord's, Jehovah's, Passover. Leviticus 23, 37. The feasts of Jehovah. Leviticus 23, 44, the Feast of Jehovah. They are not the Feast of the Jews. They were never called the Feast of the Jews. They are the Feast of Jehovah. And guess what? He says, I change not. I'm the same yesterday and today and forever. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. He is not a man that he should change his mind. 1 Samuel 15, 29. Malachi 3, 6. I am Jehovah, I change not. James 1, 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whomever is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He doesn't change. He doesn't make stuff one day and then change his mind and throw it away the next day. If the annual Sabbaths were God's feasts in the Old Testament and God does not change, then wouldn't the annual Sabbath still be God's feast today? Well, yeah. Absolutely. It is clear that they are still God's feasts. And they are clearly 
to be kept today by you. But some of you might be thinking, okay, fine. They are God's feast too, but weren't they given to Israel at Mount Sinai? There is no record of anyone keeping the feast before Mount Sinai, so they must have been only for the Jews. Again. So do we have records of them being kept before Mount Sinai? First of all, at Mount Sinai were one tribe of the Jews, one tribe of Manasseh, one tribe of Ephraim, one tribe of Simeon, one tribe of Levi, one tribe of Reuben, Manasseh. Uh, there were 13 tribes there. Plus there was an, an, another bunch of uh, Gentiles or, or innumerable multitude outside the camp. The Jews were just one part. But the Jews have been the only ones to keep it. The other 12 tribes have left. They've been kicked out for not keeping them, for not obeying God. So if Jehovah's going to kick them out for not obeying, what's he going to do to you who refuse to obey now? Be gone from me, you workers of lawlessness. Hmm. Psalm 81, 3, 5. Blow the trumpet at the new moon in the time appointed. Honor solemn feast day, for this was a statute for Israel and a law of the God of Jacob. Jacob was before Mount Sinai. This he ordained in Joseph. Joseph was before Mount Sinai. For a testimony, when he went through the land of Egypt, where I heard a language that I understood not. Hmm. That was before Mount Sinai. Genesis 26.5 Because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And you can see where Abraham is making uh, unleavened bread for the two angels. Lot's doing the same thing because they're both keeping Passover in the days of unleavened bread at that time. Abraham sacrifices Isaac when? At Passover. Representing Yeshua who's going to be killed at Passover. Genesis 19, oh, there it is. Here's Lot in Genesis 19.3. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned into him and entered into his house, and he made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. It's the days of unleavened bread. Now, here's something that you may not have caught. We're going to go back to Genesis and start at the very beginning. Genesis uh, 1.14. And God said... Let there be lights in the firmament and of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Now that word seasons is Strong's Hebrew word 4150. 4150. And so here's the Psalm 10419. And the Lord appointed the moon for seasons the sun knoweth his going down. So here it is, that same word, seasons 4150. Now, when you look up that word 4150, uh, it says seasons, but it's the word moed. Moed. M-O-E-D. And that's where this word seasons is translated from. Or, and another name for this word is moedim, which is plural. And moedim means the appointed times. The Moedim are the feasts. So right here, back in Genesis 1.14, and God said, Let there be lights, that's the sun and the moon, in the firmament of heaven, to divide the day and the night, 
and let them be for signs and for Moadim and for days and for years. Moadim are the appointed feasts of Jehovah. Still not convinced? Okay. Let's go to Exodus 13.10. Thou shalt therefore keep this ordinance, Feast of Unleavened Bread, in his season, Moadim, 41.50, from year to year. Uh, Numbers 9.2. Let the children of Israel also keep the Passover at his appointed season, 41.50, Moadim. Leviticus 23.4. These are the feasts, Moadim, 41.50, of the Lord, every holy, even holy convocations, which ye shall proclaim in their seasons. 4150, Moedim. These are the Moedim, 4150, of the Lord, or seasons. So they are feasts, they are seasons, they are Moedim, and they are of Jehovah. He created the moon so that we would know when to celebrate his Moedim his appointed times or feasts. Now, we talk about this when we talk about the beginning of the year, how uh, you use the barley, which is ripened by the sun. We use the moon, the crescent moon, to start the month so we know when to count to the holy days. That's the two signs that we use to know when the holy days are each year. What about the apostles? What about Yeshua? Did they keep these Moedim? Did they keep these feasts? Absolutely. John 7, verse 8. Go ye up to this feast. Talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he, Yeshua, up to the feast. Not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring about the people concerning him. For some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Right? So Jesus, Yeshua, kept the feast. John 7, 37. In the last day, the great day of the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood up and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. All right? He's doing this at the It's actually you know, at the end of the seventh day of the feast. He's about to start the eighth day. This is where we get into that whole section here of John 7 up to John 11. It's talking about the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of Hanukkah. It is the Feast of the Eighth Day. And most people miss that because they don't understand the feast days. They think it's Hanukkah, which is done at Keslev or around December 25th. No, he's talking about the eight-day feast and all that it means and all that the Feast of Tabernacles means about the Feast of Lights and and rivers of living water. and, And there's so much meaning here. But Yeshua kept them. And he's your example. Why aren't you following his example? Yeshua was a Jew. He did not have to offer sacrifices because he had no sin. But he kept both the weekly Sabbath and the seventh, uh, the annual, seven annual holy days. 
So here are some samples of the Sabbath. Mark 1.21, Mark 6.2, Luke 4.16, Luke 4.31, Luke 13.10. You can just keep on going. And here are the annual Sabbaths. John 7, 8 to 14, John 7, 37, Passover, Luke 24, or Luke 2, 41 to 42, John 2, 23. If you look, you can find them. Now, most Christians keep Pentecost, Pentecost because it's on a Sunday. And most Christians keep the Easter Sunday. Well, that's actually Wayshiv Day. That's the day he ascended to heaven. But that is only determined by knowing about Passover and when Passover starts. And then that counts 50 days from Passover to Pentecost. And again, that's on a Sunday. But that's a feast day of Leviticus 23. You keep Pentecost because it's Sunday, but you won't keep the other holidays because, well, because you're being a hypocrite. He's going to say to you, be gone from me, you workers of lawlessness. I do not know you. Because you won't obey and keep the law. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, imitate me in 1 Corinthians. Now Paul kept the law. Imitate him. Some of you are Pauline in your, 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 your observance. Obey him. Yeshua says, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. That's 1 Peter uh, 2.21. Why aren't you following in his footsteps? Why aren't you following the footsteps of Paul? So this expression that you're not going to keep these things because they're ceremonial laws which are nailed to the cross, it's not found in your Bible. The term ceremonial law is not found anywhere in the Bible. Where do we get it from? We get it from Ellen G. White. She used it several times when she was giving some of her, her messages. So you got it from the Seventh-day Adventists, and yet you're using it in your Christian roots. I'll quote one here for you. Sacrifices and oblations were to cease in the midst of the week, and he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. So she's quoting um, Daniel. The word oblation means offering according to Strong's Concordance. These offerings went along with the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system where the sacrifices and offerings were to cease at the cross. However, no mention is made of God's holy days ceasing at the cross. Neither the Bible nor Ellen White ever say that God's holy days were abolished at the cross. Over and over, Ellen White defines the ceremonial law as the sacrificial system. God's holy days are never included in her definition of the ceremonial law. What about all those verses Paul wrote in the New Testament? Didn't he clearly write that the feast days or annual Sabbaths were done away? No. People have interpreted Paul's writing in so many different ways. Not all interpretations claim that the feast days are abolished. But how do we know which interpretations are true? And this is where Peter warns us. 2 Peter 3.15 And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as he... Our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which they that are unlearned and unstable 
as, as uh, wrestle with, as they do with the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware, lest you also being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own destruction. So what is the law? The first five books of Moses, written on the Ten Commandments, summarized in the Ten Commandments. They're also summarized by Yeshua. What is the greatest law? You shall love the neighbor as yourself. What is the second, uh, or the first greatest law? To love God. That's the first four commandments, how to love God. And the last six commandments, how to love your neighbor. Are they done away with? No, not at all. So the law, we can quote all kinds of scriptures, but the law is true. That's Nehemiah 9.13, the law is truth. Psalm 119, 142, the law is light. Proverbs 6, 23, the law is life. Again, uh, Psalm, nope, Proverbs 13, 14, the law is peace. Psalm 119, 165, the law is perfect. Psalm, one, or Psalm 19, 7, the law is happiness. Proverbs 29, 18, the law is healing. Psalm 119, 153, the law is God's word. Isaiah 2, 3. The law is God is knowledge, Malachi 2 7. The law is wisdom, Proverbs 28 7. The law is a delight, Psalm 40 uh, 8, verse 8. The law is a blessing, Psalm 119 1. The law is to be kept forever, Psalm 119 44. The law is to be remembered, Malachi 4 4. And the law is to be written on our hearts, Jeremiah 31 33, which is what everyone says is the New Testament covenant, to be written on our hearts. The law. Why would anyone want to do away with all these good things? Well, they would if they're hypocrites. I want to get to one more point. Peter says something, and I want you to pay attention to what Peter does. First of all, you got to understand, Paul is not contradicting himself. He's not doing away with the law. For the sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the penalty of the law, but under grace. That's Romans 6.14. Acts chapter 10 tells us the story of Peter and Cornelius. And if you're not familiar with it, go and read it. The main point of the story comes out in verse 28. Peter said, or Peter said, it is an unlawful thing for a Jew to keep the company with a non-Jew. Okay, so non-Jews cannot keep company with, with those who are Jewish. What commandment is that? Where do the scriptures say that? Well, let's look at some scriptures here. Leviticus 17, 8. And thou shalt say unto them, Whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel, or of the strangers which sojourn among you, oops, that offereth a burnt offering or sacrifice, oops, how'd that get in there? That doesn't sound like a commandment that Peter just said. Let's go to Leviticus 22, 18. Speak unto Aaron and to his sons and unto the children of Israel and say unto them, Whatsoever he be of the house of Israel or of the strangers in Israel that will offer his oblation for all his vows and for all his freewill offerings, which they will offer unto the Lord for a stranger making an offering at the temple, unheard of, unbelievable. Sounds like a song from Fiddler on the Roof. Unheard of. 
Okay, let's go to Numbers 15, 14, and 16. And if a stranger sojourn with you, that's contradicting what Peter was saying, or whoever be among you in your generations and will offer an offering made by fire of a sweet savior unto the... How can he make an offering at the temple? That's only for the Jews. An offering of sweet savor unto the Lord as you do, so he shall do. One ordinance shall be for both you of the congregation and also for the stranger that sojourneth with you, an ordinance forever in your generations as ye are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law and one manner shall be for you and for the stranger that sojourneth with you. Exodus 22, 21. Thou shalt neither vex a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Does that sound like Jehovah's got a special thing for the Jews and hating the strangers? Leviticus 19, 34. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you. And thou shalt love him as thyself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. E this is so great because it's not just for the Jew it's also for the people of Burundi it's also for the people of the Philippines it's also for the people of China it's the people of South America the people of Mexico the people of, of uh, Nigeria the people of Russia he is the God of everybody and not just the God of the Jews and his rules are for everybody and they aren't just for the Jews they're for the whole world. The world is his footstool. The Torah is clear that strangers, those who are not Israelites, were not only allowed to be associated with, but they were even allowed to make offerings to Jehovah with the Israelites. They are not to be oppressed. There is no law in the Torah that forbids Jews from associating with non-Jews. So where did Peter get this law from? You're right. He got it from the Jewish oral law. Also known as the traditions and commandments of men. The Jewish oral law distorts God's law. Jesus ran into the Jewish oral law a few times in the scriptures. Matthew 15, 1-9. Then came Jesus to the scribes and Pharisees, which were, in, of, were of Jerusalem, saying, why do, the, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God? By your tradition. By your tradition. By your oral law. For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and thy mother, and he that curses father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, whoever shall say to his father or mother, it is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. So what they're doing is they're giving their gift to God so they don't have to give it to their parents. This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Yeshua is calling them hypocrites. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And if you're a Christian, you're teaching the commandments of men, which is that the law is done away, you are also a hypocrite. Luke 6, verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass in the second Sabbath, after the first. The second Sabbath is the second feast of weeks during the count up to Pentecost. 
that he went through the cornfields, and his disciples plucked the ears of corn and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. And certain of the Pharisees said unto them, Why do you, why do you that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? So they were plucking ears of corn or barley or wheat and rubbing them. First of all, when they did this, it was a sabbatical year. It was 28 AD, a sabbatical year. And you're allowed to eat what grows of itself in anyone's field. So they weren't stealing. And you're allowed to eat on the Sabbath, right? But because of Jewish traditions, talk and oat, these things were being brought against Yeshua. The oral law was kicking in. And it's the oral law that Peter was using to justify not going to visit Cornelius. And that's when Jehovah brought down that sheet and put before him all these unclean animals. That didn't mean you can now eat unclean food. The laws didn't change. So the law of commandments contained in ordinances, the oral law. What is this? Any part of the Torah had no laws in it that would cause a separation of Jews and believing non-Jews, as seen previously. The Torah encouraged strangers, non-Israelites, to take part in offerings, as well as obeying Torah instructions. But there was another law in effect, and that is the oral law, which was added to and became a burden on the people of Israel. And it caused enmity and hate between Jews and non-Jews. It's the Jewish oral law. And it's also known as the traditions and commandments of men. So, we have something else here that's, and I think this is so keen, so awesome, so wow, <clears throat> that I want you to hear this. Here's what Flavius Josephus has to say. The center of the structure was the tallest. He's talking about the temple. With the front wall being built with beams which sat upon interlocking pillars, highly glossed stones made up to this wall. So finely polished that those who looked upon it for the first time, marveled at it in amazement. This was the description of the first structure. Located within it and nearby were steps which led up to the second structure, which was surrounded by a stone wall used as a barrier engraved with an inscription not allowing foreigners to enter into it under the penalty of death. That's from Antiquities of the Jews by Josephus chapter 15.417. Uh, now, during excavations of Jerusalem in 1871, two archaeologists, Claremont and Garneau, discovered what is known to be the Soreg inscription. Written in Greek, the sign warns non-Jews to keep out of the temple area. What? We just read that non-Jews could be making sacrifices. Now we're seeing this wall that separates them and the sign that says from the keep out. Here's what the Soric Stone says, and I got a picture of it in my article. No foreigner is to enter the barriers surrounding the sanctuary. He who is caught within, he who is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. This is the middle wall of partition. While Paul is writing the epistle of the Ephesians at Rome, this barrier in the temple at Jerusalem was still standing. Yet the chained prisoner of Yeshua 
Paul was not afraid to write that Christ had broken down the middle wall of partition and had thus admitted Gentiles who were far off, strangers and foreigners, to all the privileges of access to God in ancient times possessed by Israel alone. That separation between Jew and Gentile was done away with forever in Yeshua. <clears throat> that was by John Ruther uh, Rutherford. The barrier that kept the Gentiles away from the temple in first century Palestine was unbiblical. Such a corruption would be a fitting thing for Jesus to denounce. Matthew 23:13, Or a disciple to realize is without any basis in God's law. Peter states that it, it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with a foreigner or visit him. But there is no such law anywhere in the Hebrew Scriptures. Peter must be referring to the oral traditions in which he has been raised. Furthermore, he does not claim that Jesus has now changed the covenantal administration so that a temporary prohibition is now repealed, but rather that the very nature of God means that the law, the Pharisaical traditional law, was in error all along. God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him does what is right is welcome to him. So now let's go to Ephesians 2, 11 and 19. Let's read what Paul wrote here. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles, once people of the nations, in the flesh, that at that time you were without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without Jehovah in this world. But now in the Messiah Yeshua, you who once were afar off have been made near by the blood of Messiah. For he himself is our peace, and he has made us one and has taken down, taken down the partition of the middle wall, the uncommanded wall that the leaders of the time built on the temple to separate the Jews from the Gentiles, the people of the nations. Having abolished in his flesh the hostility created by this law of commandments contained in civil man-made ordinances, this is the oral law he's talking about, so as to create in himself from the two peoples one new man creating peace, that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile alike, to God in one body through the execution stake to put to death the bitter opposition between the two. He's forgiving the sins of everyone if you repent and come back to keeping the law. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the set-apart ones and members of the household of Israel. So this, this wall that was in the Temple Mount has been torn down when the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. That's what he's talking about here. It's the oral laws that are done away with. They should never have been in incorporated in the beginning. Do you understand what we're talking about here in Colossians now? Do you see what the difference is here? We've really used up a lot of our time today. But the question is, who are you going to serve? Who are you going to serve? Satan has set out and said in, in Daniel 7, he's going to change times and laws. Satan's going to do that. Now you know what he's done. 
He's changed the Sabbath to Sunday. He's changed the holy days of Leviticus 23 to pagan holidays that people keep now. What are you going to do? Are you going to start to keep the holy days? Open up Leviticus 23 and start to learn about them. The holy days are shadow pictures of things to come. The holy days reveal the entire plan of salvation. Many in Christianity talk about the rapture. They have no clue what they're talking about, and they guess, and they get excited every time some new guy comes along and says the rapture is going to be this month or next month. Or if they tie it to a blood moon, or they tie it to a Jewish holy day. Instead, they don't realize that if they were to keep those holy days, which are Jehovah's holy days, and keep his Sabbath, and keep his Torah, and keep his laws, they wouldn't be under this penalty of death that they're under now. The Ten Commandments, the laws, the Torah, the Old Covenant was not nailed to the tree. The debt that you owed for sinning and not keeping those laws, that was nailed to the cross and paid for your sins if you repent and return to Jehovah. When you look up the word, you know, confess his name, those who confess his name will be saved. When it says confess his name, that's referring to returning to the covenant at Mount Sinai. So this has been a strong pill, one of those big horse pills for you to swallow. We're going to talk some more about some of these other things in future episodes and show you how Christianity has taken this and twisted it. Like, like Peter says about Paul's writing, they've twisted and they made Paul out to be a, a very bad person for breaking the law. I hope you've learned from this. I hope you read the rest of the newsletter. I hope you'll join us in the, uh, sharing this with other people. May Jehovah bless you. May Jehovah open your eyes so that you can see the truth. And may Jehovah inspire you to start to obey his commandments so that on Judgment Day, he's going to say, I know you. I know you. You repented on such and such a day. You started obeying me on such and such a day. I know you. Come on. Come on. You're welcome in my kingdom. I'm so glad you're here. Or is he going to say to you, take a hike, buddy. I don't know who you are, you worker of lawlessness. Get out of here. Jehovah, open their eyes so they can see the truth. Bless them so they'll obey and be part of your kingdom. And let your name be glorified. Amen. Shalom, brethren. It is because of listeners like you who have had the foresight to both pray for us and financially support this program that have allowed us to continue to teach others who are still looking for these truths. Because you have paid it forward, many are now able to hear this message and to learn these truths about the sabbatical and jubilee cycles, along with the magnificent prophecies which could only be revealed in these very last days. When you support our efforts financially today, we are able to produce more radio and video teachings that help others who are waking up and beginning to look for the God that warned us of these curses that are already happening on the nightly news and of even worse, what is yet to come. You can send your support by going to our support page at www.sidedmoon.com or by mailing checks, bank drafts, or money orders made out to Joseph F. Dumond, P.O. Box 21007 RPO, 151st Street, Orangeville, Ontario, Canada, L9WS3O. On behalf of those yet to be called, we thank you for helping us get this end time warning out.